in that class when we started talking about Native American, the history of like the Native American experience in America, she made our class watch Thunderheart. Like that should show you the level of this lady's like phony baloney credentials, which don't get me hey, wrong. It's I, a good movie. I like Thunderheart. <laughs> I do too. I like Thunderheart. But like looking back at it, I'm kind of like, really of all the movies to show, you show the one with the white savior kind of narrative still embedded within it. Yeah, right? directed like, by Michael Apted. Directed. Sensitive man, but. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah, she could have shown uh, Incident at Oglala, which is also directed by Michael Apted. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, but like. That's right. Yeah, I think a, a more, you know, a more representative of actual Native American identity than Val Kilmer being like, I'm what? I'm half what? I don't like that side of me or whatever. It's like. <laughs> Graham Greene, like, oh, I got to be, I got to be funny in this movie and yeah. carry it, you know? Yeah. I got to, I got to play, you know, the second fiddle to the fucking Lone Ranger here, you know? Great cast, dude. Fred Ward, Sam Shepard. Uh, don't get me wrong. I didn't. <laughs> We all like Thunderheart. Thunderheart's like good. Thunderheart. But the policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, the truth is, guys, starting to get on my That's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me, as always, are... Ryan Saunders. And... Andrew Stasulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that theme. And we come on here and uh, run the proverbial gauntlet. It's episode 128 and the theme is Rome. Ancient Rome. And I got inspired last week watching, well, I was sort of on a kick watching just kind of like late 50s, early 60s epics. Like every 10 years, I think now, I sort of just get a hankering to watch a lot of mediocre, like two and a half hour long Hollywood movies from the late 50s, you know, a lot to sift through there still. And I came across The Fall of the Roman Empire by Anthony Mann, and uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And it got me thinking that... uh this is something I want to be seeing more of right now, you know, Rome and all that that entails. And I think uh, it's a fun topic in cinema because it's, you know, usually uh, used to sort of reflect on civilization, society, and, and all that big stuff we know and love, and often, yes, including war, adventure, action, all that stuff. So I was very curious to see what directions we would go in uh, this week, and I gotta say, uh, you did not disappoint at all. On the one hand, I think we have a uh, rather conventional and very fun uh, sort of adventure action kind of take on Rome. And on the other hand, uh, we have a very sort of 
gay modernist interpretation of uh, sort of a, a Christian aspect of the Roman experience. So uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground tonight, and I mean a lot of ground from before Rome started long before certainly the, the Republic or the Empire, and we're going to take it all the way uh, damn near the end into, I believe, the 3rd century AD. So, uh, whoo, what a trip we got here uh, back to Rome today on the pod. So uh, let's get into it. Andy, you had the earlier of the films. Why don't you bring it on out? I'd be glad to. Uh Peeling back the curtain just a little bit to folks who aren't privy to our conversations off the pod, when uh, you were talking to me about this topic and your idea for it, uh, we had both started to imagine, like, what are the the real ancient Rome movies. Are there any movies, you know, pre-Republic uh, that we could think of? And off the top of my head, I couldn't. Um, so in part, I think I was trying to test myself to be like, okay, let's, if we're talking ancient Rome, let's see how far back we could go. And that brought me in part, uh, it's part of what brought me to the film that I ultimately chose. That film is Duel of the Titans. At least that's the American title from 1961. Uh, the actual Italian title is uh, around the titular characters Romulus and Remus. Directed by Sergio Corbucci, the master of the Italian spaghetti Western. Prior to the popularity, though, of the spaghetti westerns in the Italian film industry, the peplum genre was all the rage. Movies about ancient Rome and ancient Greece, and a lot of great uh, Italian genre directors uh, got their start, cut their teeth making these sword and sandal adventure films, action films, epic uh, fables and bits of mythology. And that's what this is. This is a story of the foundation of Rome itself. For those who are not familiar with the mythological tale of Romulus and Remus, they were brothers. Supposedly in the in the folklore, sired by a woman and a god, who were then uh, uh, going to be, I think, killed or murdered by this sort of like evil uh, king of one of the tribes, who saw them as a threat. Their their mother sent them down a river. The babies put them in a little basket. And the tide down a river. The Tiber River, yes. And they were rescued by, of all things, a wolf, a she-wolf, who supposedly, again in the folklore, raised them from pups. Uh, there's many famous uh, depictions of this, this folklore in, in lots of statues in Italy, especially in and around Rome, of a, of a, of a she-wolf and two infant children suckling from its 
teats. Anyway, these brothers were then sort of, I guess, liberated or rescued from this she-wolf. We'll get into a little bit more of that when we talk about the film. They were then raised uh, as humans, as human boys. They grew up to become, uh, in in the case of this film, sort of like young ne'er-do-well shepherds slash bandits who run afoul again of, of one of the kings, and this sets them off on their, their great journey, their great action adventure, which will ultimately lead to the foundation of the city of Rome itself. We'll get into a lot more of the, the details, right? But this is a, a, a essentially a, a Rome origin story of sorts. This film stars two uh, very, at the time, popular American sort of beefcakes. Romulus is played by Steve Reeves, otherwise known as Hercules. And his brother Remus is played by Gordon Scott, who was one of the many men who would play Tarzan in a series of, you know, popular uh, adaptations of the, the Burroughs novels. Anyway, they're here together, the OG Bash brothers, two big beefcakes just sort of running around in ancient, ancient Rome, uh, romancing, a little bit of heisting going on, a whole lot of fighting, and eventually, yes, uh, starting what would become one of the first truly, truly magnificent empires in the classical age, the Roman Empire. So yeah, uh, this is a, as Mar said, it's just sort of a, a fun little romp. Uh, there's, of course, a lot of liberties being taken with what is already uh, a story that has a lot of different sort of interpretations and, and versions being told. This, though, also is an opportunity for Corbucci working within his genre to, I think, insert a little bit of his class consciousness. We'll get into some of that as well when we, uh, I think, pick apart the movie, movie in more detail. But yeah, um, it is what it is, folks. It's, uh, it's uh, two muscle-bound men sort of stomping around the Italian countryside in a uh, genre pick. So yeah, Romulus and Remus, the duel of the titans, the founding of Rome itself. That's what I brought to the pod this week. Thank you very much. Ryan, why don't you tell us about what you brought? When I first had the prompt, my instinct, of course, was, all right, <laughs> it's time for some strabule on on the gauntlet. We're, we're going to yeah, die. Finally. In. <laughs> and then I decided not to do that. I was um, I was thinking about how mentally challenging it would be. I wasn't sure if I was like up for that type of Roman experience this week. I feel as though films that deal with the Roman Empire have always felt a little crusty for me. It's not one of like my favorite genres, but I also think it's partially a lack of Roman Empire education. 
in in my school years, I feel as though whenever I've taken history courses, it's been glossed over and not adequately addressed. So I, I feel like I have a very literary understanding of it, but not one where when I hear things referenced, I feel as though I'm like always really confused. So a lot of times those like stuffy, like lavish epics, they don't scratch the itch for me as much. But I was looking through some films, just looking at my archive, seeing some things I had access to. And I was like, wow, four years ago <laughs> when I was on a Derek Jarman kick, I, you know, was studying up and I had a couple of films and there was one that I've been meaning to see for, for at least four years. And um, when I was looking over some of the trivia for it and I saw that it was the the first non-pornographic film to feature an erection, I thought, ah, what the heck, why not? I, uh, <laughs> I should bring that onto the show. So the film I ended up picking is Sebastian from 1976, directed by Derek Jarman and Paul Humphreys. The film itself tells the story of the Christian martyr and saint, Sebastian, and it details his exile and also then his his martyrdom where he's he's executed uh, by the end of the film however one thing we were talking about just before we started was that despite this having a very like Christian lens it's interesting that he's not resurrected at the end of this film I feel like it's worth bringing that up at the top because it's a film really obsessed with the physical experience of Sebastian and the carnality involved with all of that. For some context of like when this film is set and how it is, is set up, we have like a bit of introductory text at the beginning that says, during the summer of the year 303, Emperor Diocletian's palace was ravaged by a series of inexplicable fires. This guy gets really paranoid, starts blaming people all around him, and there's a great persecution. And then later, when Diocletian is hosting like a huge Christmas party referred <laughs> to like in his throne with like a jubilee and games. I think it's for Christmas. Well, they, it was celebrating on uh, the 25th of December. They specifically yeah, note wow. that. But yes, of and course. They specifically hate Christ. <laughs> yes, they do. They do. You know? Which, again, yeah, that's, that's part of the reason I think it's a very perverse <laughs> Christmas party. This all like comes to a head at a day where they truly hate Christ. But at this point, um, Sebastian himself is the personal one of the personal guards of Emperor Diocletian and the emperor again in a moment of just being accusatory picks someone out sets one of his catamites on him starts like chewing at the man's neck to kill him but Sebastian intervenes and says like no don't don't do that. That's, that's no good. You're ruining Christmas. You're ruining Christmas, yeah. <laughs> and because of that, Sebastian, he's exiled. He has to join uh, a coastal garrison as a private. And then the rest of the film is a lot of scantily clad men. Jarman has a joke about the fact that none of them were in clothes because they couldn't afford costumes. Uh, but, you know, that's a, he's being a little witty there because reality, it's about just beautiful, muscular men. There is a remarkable amount of homoeroticism this is a, a queer film that was directly you know made for a queer audience and sebastian himself has become sort of an a queer icon in art because of the way he's traditionally been depicted in his martyrdom when he's chained up to a pole and penetrated with many arrows always very shirtless it always looks very erotic i was like doing a little deep dive looking at some of the representations of him it's it's no secret why he has been, you know, accepted by the queer community as being like an icon of sorts in this subject of male eroticism. 
And that's, you know, that's much of the rest of the film, uh, just in terms of its plot, where it's, it's a lot of desire being thrown around. It's a lot of frustration at a group of men who don't like that Sebastian believes in, in Christ and is someone who tries to live like a pure faith-based life. The film's dialogue is entirely in Latin, which I think is amazing. I watch the film wishing that more films were in Latin because it's just like a marvel to listen to. And yeah, of course, you know, it's, it's a Derek Jarman film, so it has like a very sexual and expressive view of history. But I gotta say, I wonder if this is what it was like, you know? The vulgar quality of this film mixed with its beauty, it kind of seems like if it was a bunch of naked men hanging out uh, out in the, in the desert, that this might be kind of how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this film is, is certainly not stuffy. Anyways, it's it's a really complicated film, and it's one that I just marveled at throughout the duration uh, of watching it. I really like Derek Jarman's work. I think he's a really special filmmaker, and I especially like his films that are engaging with old history because his depictions of the past through a more contemporary queer lens I think reveals so much about our past and how we can even just think about the world we live in right now. I think he's a really incredible filmmaker so I'm excited to finally bring him on the show but that's Sebastian from 1976. Thank you very much. Um, wow where to start? Um, well I should point out you know as as mentioned previously uh Kyle's a bit of a a bit of a Roman scholar herself, you know. She was a history major in college with a focus on sort of early Christianity and, and Roman period. And and one of the weird things about our relationship is uh we never knew each other in undergrad, but we had the same Roman history professor. because uh, I took a Roman history course and it was uh it was very fun. And turns out, you know. Almost was in the same room as her, but not. Anyway, we love Rome around here, you know. Same um, same place, different time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, she took Latin like her whole life and went on like a like a Latin field trip to to Italy, you know, in high in high school because uh, that's a cool thing to do. It's not nerdy. Um, <laughs> Well, I think, well, first of all, yes. Where uh, to start? Beefcakes. Well, yeah, beefcakes, beefcakes. <laughs> correct, Andy. Uh, that is where I want to start. We start with beefcakes. Both of these movies, in their own way, are about beefcakes and male bodies and dudes flexing. And, of course, Duel of the Titans in a very heteronormative uh, sort of late 50s, early 60s way. And, and Jarman in a, in a very different way, although he has uh, some characters in his film that reflect a more traditional or conservative view. Uh, and we can get into that. But I guess I'm most interested in sort of right off is like looking at the sort of myth like the history and myth aspect of, of these filmmakers tackling these projects so Corbucci on the one hand t tackling the sort of foundation myth of Rome and to me I'm, I'm watching it you know knowing uh, what's going to come in the future and I'm going like this is a western you know it's it's a migration western this movie's wagon train you know right, or whatever right. like that's basically what it is like a bunch of people get into some shit and then they're all like damn we gotta go over here now and like it's very treacherous it's like uh, duel in the sun yeah exactly and so i'm i'm looking at this and going like yeah this is 
you know, he's warming up for the Western. This is basically a Western on like maybe superficially, but it's basically a Western. And I was having a lot of fun sort of looking at it from that lens. Um, and then, of course, on the other hand, Jarman looking into, you know, a, a Christian saint uh, and then doing in doing so right, uh, subverting history and subverting uh yeah christianity and so i think they both like i immediately noticed like what these filmmakers were sort of like interested in within rome like and it's not like rome itself necessarily right, right. uh rome of course is a pretext uh to attack these different things and and we have a very uh classic sort of gauntlet double feature tonight where uh, Duel of the Titans is a very classical film. Uh, and even knowing Corbucci's later works, I was like, wow, this is so restrained, you know? No zooms, no uh, no erratic camera movements. It's very composed. And yes, it's like scope, so it's got that going on. But I was like, this is his ride the high country, you mm -hmm. know? It's like the last gasp of, of classicism before they all start, like, kind of losing their minds <laughs> as they make these westerns, <laughs> like, later in the 60s you know but compare this to Django I mean it's like tonally it's night and day you know and even formally it's night and day in a lot of ways um and then Jarman approaching it like a modernist you know yeah. this very I mean look I gotta say it right out it's this movie's Beau Travai I'm sure you guys both, <laughs> both oh, thought yeah. about that like just like hot men doing exercises in a military outpost. Right. I mean, well, it has no yeah. plot. It's just drifting. It's either like they're playing these carnal games with each other or they're just like chilling and being horny. Uh, there's no plotting at all. And what he's able to do with that, yeah, I think is is remarkable. Yeah, what, uh, that is absolutely uh, what I was experiencing when I was watching it. I was thinking to myself that like uh, Claire Denis had to be a a fan of this work i had to at least have seen it because the the comparisons the the parallels are are in almost every single moment of the film uh i mean it is or yes. maybe jarman read billy bud you know <laughs> like well, sure. with severus like it's kind of a similar relationship oh for sure but again even just the way it it, it deals with space and the way it deals with with the idea of of touch communicating more than like words and, and looking and seeing and feeling and so much like internalization. I mean, yes, I, I definitely felt that. I also wonder if Claire Denis was inspired by the Christmas party come shot at the beginning of Sebastian to, to do her like <laughs> giant lotion uh, jar container explosion and trouble every day for Vincent Gallo when, he, when he's jerking off on the wall. Ooh. 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 <laughs> these, uh, these are the questions. Yeah, yeah. They are. Um, But I really like what you said, Marsh, about how <laughs> watching both of these films, you can tell like what their angle is on Rome because they both feel like films that are thinking about the way Rome has traditionally been depicted in art or just responding to certain trends in art and applying it to the era. Because yes, the Corbucci film absolutely feels like a Western. That's without a doubt. And I think that with Jarman's film, of course, like he's 
obsessed with art history, and you can feel that in any of his films that are engaging with the past. Um, I, I love Caravaggio, which is just like one of the most beautiful historical films I've ever seen. And he's doing something similar, but with like a much larger budget and all these resources. Like he's one of those really amazing filmmakers that when he got a bunch of money, his movies still felt like anarchy and and really radical even if they have like a sheen of just like a normal british film from the 80s or 90s this one clearly they didn't have very much money but it is also responding to just physical depictions of men in art from the era i mean again like you said beefcakes both of these films everyone feels as though they're chiseled out of stone and like that's what our memory of rome is like these are the artifacts we have we can only think of these men as being so like purely toned and sun-baked because of how we see them in art that's definitely definitely true i think of of yeah of both films but it's it is like i think important to 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 point out in that regard that this is jarman's first feature as well yeah. right mm -hmm. so which is crazy it's yeah insane. i mean it's it's very advanced for a first film but also having seen uh some of his later films and and certainly some of his like more budgeted films like caravaggio which i'm a big fan of uh, as well like yeah he's 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 this is like the foundation of of so much that he would sort of like build upon and it's like it is all here but it is kind of interesting to see it where, I mean, like you kind of said in your intro that it, it, it does have this feeling of sort of like, all right, let's just grab a camera and go to the beach yeah. and let's just uh, experience, let's just experience each other. Let's experience the sun on our skin, the water in our hair, all of these things. And, and so it is very stripped down, but I think you're right that, that, to the period that it's depicting, like, uh, it's, it, it feels so, so almost naturalistic and raw and, and very like lived in, in that, in that sense. In that sense too, it reminded me of course, of passing strangers where here, like Jarman is linking, you know, homosexuality to nature as something natural, right? Just something that crossed my mind that we would so, so quickly be back, you know, in this territory, right? But I think that also was really what was fascinating to me. And now I'm formulating uh, a, a Sebastian is a Western take as well, <laughs> because now, uh, it's like stagecoach to me now that I'm thinking about it. And it is from something that Jarman said that, that I read. He said, like, you know, it allowed him to then, like, define all of these different people against Sebastian. So you're revealing the multitude of attitudes that would have existed at the time. Mm. Because we should say, in the Roman outpost, you have two guys who are just, like, openly gay and just, like, going at it. And this makes some people uncomfortable, and this makes other people very turned on. And, like, homosexuality is tolerated, but it's tolerated in, like, a, well, yeah, we'd all really rather fuck women, though, you know? There is this very, like, misogynist uh, sort of like heteronormative thing to the behaviors of some of the men. And so now that I'm thinking about it, it's like, yes, it's stagecoach where it's like the cross section of society and their attitudes as defined towards Christians and homosexuality. And of course, the interchange between the two, because that's like what's crazy about this movie is that like Sebastian is just gay for God. 
Right. And no and no one and no one else, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. There's that there's that one line that I think boils it down, like a lot of their attitudes about homosexuality where they mention that, you know, the one guy who's like the really boorish one, I don't know his name, the guy that's got Max. like the nose thing. Max. His name is Max. Maximus. Okay, yeah. that's Maximus. Yeah, Maximus is the one who's like always really fired up about just about anything in this movie. He's like the aggressive <laughs> guy uh, at, at every turn and at, at any point. But he's the one that like calls them out and says like, ah, you're you're worse than a Greek. A boy is only good for a quick one. Like, get me back to Rome. Like, get me to a woman. Non schio, quale? Tibita placente puere, Antonia? Tu peos graculo in quam. Certe voluptas desta vaca. And that's like how he treats it. Like there is like somewhat of a tolerance or at least like, yeah, this is out of necessity. We're all here on this coastal outpost where we're stranded here. But like, come on, we we don't love this. At least <laughs> according to Maximus. Correct me, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, though, or 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 if I'm just misremembering this but isn't this story also being framed as maximus ultimately telling us of these events like that he's recalling them well there's a there's one shot right at the beginning where he begins the tale essentially uh with a direct address to the audience and then it's never revived. So right. I was almost like, how, what are we supposed to do with that? Because it's not like reinforced as the frame story ever again. Right. Know? There isn't like voiceover throughout, right. but that, that we enter into this, this tale ultimately through Maximus, uh, recalling the events true. and right. Sebastian. That's interesting because I'm I'm playing back some of the scenes in my head. I feel like there's definitely sequences that he is not present for, of course. Uh, so it's oh, yeah. like not just a subjective POV. But I was thinking when that moment happened that it felt very theatrical, as if we were watching a stage production. I can imagine like you know the huge opening act, which is that that party, that orgy, and. I could see then, you know, Maximus directly confronting the audience, spotlit, sets getting changed, and then we pivot for the rest of the production for being out on the outpost. And just knowing that Jarman was like a set designer, costume designer, just a very visual filmmaker and artist in general, I could see him thinking of it that way too, like traditionally, like if this was a stage production, there would be a moment of direct address. But it's it's interesting because I hadn't like actually considered it from that framework of these are his memories. Um, Because he's still ultimately there at the end. Like he is present and watching these things play out. Interestingly enough, then just I'm like rereading the film now, suddenly sitting here thinking about like if this is his perspective, it's interesting how he presents himself so horribly in the film. But it's also then maybe an honest retelling of what he he was like or his principles, Maximus, you know, as if some of this was inevitable. It's interesting. Like now I just want to like sit and rewatch it. Well, my my reading of it, the reason I bring it up is because my reading of it and and i don't know if it's there or not uh but my my own reading of it then was that this as much as it is about sebastian it's also about like maximus like his experience of sebastian and at first as this very 
like hostile figure, but perhaps now recounting the events in his own mind, it's this sense of, of growth, right? That like, yeah, we did this horrible thing to this guy, <laughs> you know, we basically like murdered an angel or something like that mm-hmm. because yeah. look at how awful we all were back then. We didn't understand him. We didn't understand the world. We didn't understand life. And so it's this sort of, yes, like depiction more, not, I wouldn't say like of necessarily like Sebastian, but, but like the people around Sebastian and what they, they ultimately like do to him. Yeah. In the same way that again, talking about Beau Travai, it's like, it's Galoop, like recalling these events, Galoop telling the story. And again, in Beau Travai, Galoop is certainly at this point in his life willing to depict all of the nasty, nasty things inside of him that, that he did by again, like sanctifying some poor guy through torture, psychological and physical. Yeah, and certainly Maximus, uh, you know, he doesn't have Christian values, so he doesn't no. give a shit about how you're judging or anyone's judging any of the right. de- depictions right. of things. I mean, because, yeah, I mean, I have a hard time accepting growth from him because he's the one uh, sort of dragging Justin around in the crown of thorns in the last scene and, like, forcing him to shoot the arrow, you know? So, sure, sure. Uh, brutal stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very brutal. It's such a fascinating film in its construction, then, because it really does allow for these types of readings, and I think both... The idea of perspective is really interesting in this film, and then also what you were mentioning, Marsh, where, like Stagecoach, all these different people are in reference to Sebastian and how they interact with him and understand him and then being like cross-sections of different society. Because this film, again, like we said, doesn't have just a plot per se, but at every turn... I feel as though we're presented with like a brand new visual idea. That's the thing that I was so stunned by with this movie. Cause even his later films, which of course are, he's just like primarily a visual filmmaker, even his later films where it's a little more calculated in terms of how some of those visuals relate to the plotting of it. This one, as much as it felt as though, yeah, they were hanging out, they had a camera, they didn't have much of a budget and they were exploring what we're actually given feels so carefully considered uh, and especially the way that sound relates to so many of these images. I was just thinking even when like you think there's a lull and then all of a sudden we have a procession of goats and you hear their bells and Jarman like intensifies the sound of the bells and we're just watching all these goats go by and we're spending all that time with that. It's just visual idea after visual idea, the amount of energy with such a small budget for a first feature, I was I was really floored by it. Well, he's always creating like new visual relationships amongst the men and amongst the landscapes, mm-hmm. right? And I think of so, how so much of the film is also like subjectively like Severus's perspective. There's so many times we see him yeah. as like you know, the the hot blonde commander of this, you know, godforsaken outpost. Like, he's just staring at Sebastian or staring at Anthony and what Adrian or whatever, just like longingly, right? Because he's got a lot of feelings, but he's mostly like, yeah, we're then just like 
looking at two guys glistening in the water in slow motion as he's just like staring at them or even at the beginning you know it's like when we're introduced to Sebastian in the outpost we see him washing himself and saying like a prayer to God in this voiceover and then we get a competing voiceover of Severus as he's lusting Mm. after him in this like godly moment that has now been made like profane because he's just like lurking in the window or whatever but it's constantly shifting us around to their perspectives you know but it is also yeah just a movie where guys play like frisbee like (laughs) straight up you know i mean there's plenty of anachronisms but yeah like there's literally it's like a scene from what hot american summer when they all like run down into the at the beach into the water and they're like woo, and they're playing they have like a volleyball and it's like pass it to me maximus you know they're just like horsing around in the water like that shit is fucking amazing and yeah they had no money but that's that's the jarman touch i mean go to the opening which is like a punk new wave party basically yeah. you know yeah. look at the people in there he was like i let them dress themselves right, you know right, like right. that that was just his weirdo friends pretending they were at a diocletian orgy but they just like <laughs> showed up in what they normally wore like punk shit from the 70s yeah. you know Oh God! When they're playing ball in the water, that's one of those things where I say like it's it has uh, it's so anachronistic that it just suddenly feels as if it's it's so true to life that that must have been what it was like. Like because these guys are still just yelling in Latin, and I'm like, what you know? What were they really like? Those guys hanging out, having fun. If they had a ball. That's probably more what it was like, because they're always speaking in really like vulgar turns of phrases with each other. And you think about cinematic depictions of soldiers in Rome in the classic Hollywood period, of course, like there's like an idea of this respectability. We're referring back to printed text in history, but you don't always have that like vulgar quality to the way that human beings just have spoken for eternity. Right. And I love seeing like a group of guys yelling in Latin, just saying like, pass me the ball and then like grabbing each other's asses and being like, you know, enough. Fuck you. Like, I can't take this anymore. Like, stop, stop touching me. And it just feels very real in terms of what like maybe it felt like to just be a guy hanging out with another group of toned men uh, in 303. I feel like that really connects to Duel of the Titans because... As much as they're sort of, like, narratively so different, uh, there's a lot of, like, feats of strength and, like, male athleticism, right? Of course, one of the things that the the Rome, you know, is known for, right? And I even read, I didn't know this, but uh, St. Sebastian is not just for the gays, but also athletes are big fans of uh, Sebastian. So uh, it was making me think just now about like how many sort of like competitive things happen in duel of the Titans in a very fun way. Like they have the horse race, uh, and the vulture count, although it's off screen, but, uh, there's a lot of like, yeah, this sort of like measuring your toughness. But of course, as you were alluding to earlier, Andy, I think Corbucci has, yeah, a little more on his mind than the toughness because, uh, that's not going to win the day here, you know? No, I mean, Corbucci is is uh, one of those filmmakers uh, that that I think you know for those who who seek it out you'll see in his uh, genre films and this would become so much more overt as he would 
you know, work in, in spaghetti westerns. And as you were sort of saying earlier, Marsh, it's like, I guess things just got a lot looser in the, in the mid sixties and in the early seventies for the Italian film industry. And certainly in their, their, their politics, but, but like Corbucci is like, yes, he, he very clearly has an assignment here and he's got two big, you know, in Europe, big stars. I mean, these guys certainly like, were were known in America, but but both of their careers, I think, would become much bigger and more financially successful when uh, both Steve Reeves and Gordon Scott like made the jump, like a lot of other like kind of flailing American actors at that time to Italy. Uh, but but yeah, you know, he's got these two guys who were like the first like you know like bodybuilders of any kind of like big, you know, media fame. And, and he's got the story, right? It's like, okay, yeah, sword and sandal and, and action and romance and all these things. But he is still able to insert within that, I think, you know, uh, certain elements of like Corbucci's own kind of political view. Because as much as this is just about like, yay, Rome, the foundation, like we took it from this, this violent, chaotic time uh this lawless time to something of like order like i i don't think that that's necessarily what it what is depicted here uh corbucci is very critical in many of his films of systems of power and systems of authority and also what those systems do to the individual in an inherently like corrupt and violent world. And, and that's really what we see. And I think that's why he highlights competition, why he highlights that, that sort of aggressive competition. We eventually will even see between these two brothers that it isn't just like, Hey, like, let's just do the, you know, it's like the, 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 like Schwarzenegger call weathers, like arm clasp meme, right? You know, it isn't just that it's that they're, they're torn apart by this world and by promises of, of success and power and those kinds of things. So, so I think that competition is in there because Corbucci sees the, 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 the violence of the competitive capitalist world we live in. The first major, sorry, real quick, the first major like thematic note I wrote about the movies, uh, inherently corrupt world you know <laughs> yeah, i mean like yeah. that's on display in the first five minutes you know so right i'm right there with you right from the beginning he's clearly not as interested in the mythical or fantastical elements of the story because like that's what he's getting to the heart to with with very little time you know right from the start like i thought that maybe there would be more of them being raised by wolves, you know? Like, that's when you think you're going to watch a Romulus and Remus movie, you're going to be... We don't even get to see him suckle. No. No. Not at all. We just have an extremely brief moment where there's (laughs) the dubbed crying sounds of babies looping looping in, like, an extremely uh, grating way. (laughs) Yeah. As, like, a man... Hillary even pointed out when we were watching, she's like, that baby's not even crying, you know? (laughs) Yeah, one of those babies is just a ham. He's just, like, smiling, (laughs) bug-eyed at the camera they were so tiny they were they were yeah at the very beginning when because the movie starts like ron howard's willow when the the babies are like put um in the basket and and thrown down the river i do love when she's holding the two babies and one of them is like a doll that if it if it was a human looked as though it was bloodless because it was almost blue (laughs) and while the other one is like a sun-kissed baby 
but yeah, the the actual being raised by wolves truly, if in, in essence, like has doesn't even have a scene to it. It's just them being picked up by the man who's going to like bring them to civilization because he wants to then just quickly move ahead and like go straight to the heart of like this is the civilization we're in. Society is corrupt. And on top of that, you know, and I think it's like, and I think it's an important like uh, detail to note. Right, they're rescued by this wolf, which is a part of the the, the mythological yeah. aspect, right? Uh, and the wolf, for its troubles, for rescuing these these children, is just instantly shot down by this shepherd who sees it as what it is, like a sort of natural threat to his flock. Without even a, a, a second thought, this guy just you know domes it with an arrow, you know. And I was like bummed, you know, because yeah. I'm like. Again, right? Like this awesome wolf who showed mercy and tenderness and care to raise something that is essentially just a good snack for it. But but the wolf showed compassion, compassion, probably the most compassion in the, in the movie, right? <laughs> sure. And then it's just just felled instantly by an arrow. And like, that's the end of that kind of mythological bullshit. Corbucci just pushes it aside with this shepherd. That's like, damn, look at that wolf. Oh, it's dead now. Now right. I got these kids. I'm going <laughs> to raise them as my own. Right. Like, cause even in the myth, uh, like the myth in one of the myths, like there's like an interaction with the God, a God on the river. And it's like, that's not, none of that is here. Interesting. Again, there's, there's no like no. fantastical. No, I mean, again, if we, if you, if you see Corbucci as I do, as a sort of like, you know, like uh, a bitter, cynical old communist of sorts, like certainly a leftist, like he, he doesn't care about that shit. I mean, he sees it all as, as essentially like puffery and bullshit. Now in this it, it it sort of like has to be there because anyone in Rome knows the 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 myth of Romulus and Remus. So it's like he includes that that kind of like prologue, but then and then brushes it aside again to just like get into what he really wants. I mean, uh, shortly after that, when we are then you know quickly uh, twenty uh, years later, yes, yeah, Lupercalia, right, skipping ahead. Uh, Romulus like goes to this kind of like religious ceremony that the the king of this tribe like this this sort of like pagan religious ceremony where they slaughter a, a lamb and then they they take strips of the lambs like hide and whip all of the people with like these bits of like animal hide and flesh as like a sign of prosperity or good luck. And all these people are, are sort of like fighting each other to get whipped. You know, like it's like an honor to be whipped by your king. Romulus says to the king's daughter while like trying to sort of like hit on her. Those whippings are useless torture and shouldn't be seen by eyes as beautiful as yours. My name's Romulus. What's yours? How dare you touch me? I see you like to struggle. You, you shouldn't hit my brother on the head. He was enchanted by your beauty. That's right, I swear it. Like, I think I wrote down the specific line. Like, he says that these are just, uh, these are just thieves. You know, these, these religious leaders are, are just a different kind of thief. You know, and again, this is like Corbucci sort of, sur quote, sermonizing himself here, right? Like, religion is the opiate of the masses on a certain level. Like, look at these hucksters taking advantage of all these, like, gullible saps. Romulus, like, doesn't buy into that shit. He's just kind of like, this is just another form of, 
of enslavement through mystical means. While they're uh, performing a, a horse heist. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Again, like they take advantage of this moment to steal a bunch of horses because that's what you got to do to get ahead in this world. And as Kyle said, uh, look at those thighs. <laughs> those thighs and those necks. My God. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And like the tiniest little waists like yeah. on all these guys. <laughs> it was funny. So we were watching funny. this and Molly, she's watching and she just says, you know, like, what do you think? Like, so would they have those undies on or do you think it was just long shirts and their their cock and balls would be like flopping around <laughs> like at any given moment? I like don't know what they were actually wearing because it's so hard to tell, right? With if you're comparing it to the Jarman film, like they did have some straps, but like usually, you know, dicks were out <laughs> in that one too. <laughs> so it's like hard to cross well, reference. I'll put it this way. In 800 BC, maybe. Yeah, I'll put it this way though. In the Jarman film, whatever they're wearing, like w- wasn't enough to to cover those guys up really to be, you know, <laughs> if, we're, if we're speaking about like modesty here, like you, you see everything, you know, whether they're naked or not. I mean, you've just got a tiny little strip of fabric as the sort of right, barrier between. Right. <laughs> it's so funny, too, then with that anecdote about Jarman saying that the reason that everyone is so scantily clad in it is because they didn't have enough money for costumes. I was like with the costumes they actually have in that movie. I was so much more impressed with what people were wearing in Jarman's film than I was in the Corbucci. I mean, in the Corbucci, it looked as though some of those long shirts were literally just like normal t-shirts that they then trim oh, yeah. to give a little bit of design or pants look like jeans that were p- Dude, painted <laughs> like there there's the one in their like bandit group there's like the one chick who's kind of like the quote like loose woman or whatever and she's wearing the bro yeah right. like the yeah like the the the, the bro chick the woman the with like the whatever. insane hair yeah, she's got like this big like 1960s kind of like almost beehive thing going yeah, on exactly. with her hair. Yeah. But she's wearing she's wearing pants, she's Just wearing jeans. like a tunic. Yeah. She, yeah, I mean it's like <laughs> I mean it's again, it's clear, look, this is an Italian genre film. We've been in right. this territory before <laughs> and they reuse a lot of things. They reuse plots, they reuse locations, and I'm sure they just simply go into the wardrobe and grab whatever is available because again, considering the time period, this is what like 700 is supposed to be like 7 I think the the Romulus Remus is like 700 mid 7 hundreds like bce bc i think so like they would not be wearing what all these guys are wearing i mean some of the soldiers are wearing like roman imperial armor and (laughs) stuff like yeah that got me really confused (laughs) yeah the idea is essentially that this is just a bunch of just like like hill people these are like loosely associated tribes and there were like quote kingdoms and that sort of thing but like the idea is that like Romulus was the first one that started the 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 quote kind of more modern Roman organization and and unification and and civilization obviously through a lot of like conquest but like yeah they are they're all over the place I mean you want to talk about anachronistic I mean look this is an Italian genre film it's filled with anachronisms probably more anachronisms than Jarman's film in that regard. Yeah, I mean, even of course, I mean, it's like any movie in the 20th century set in this period. People are talking about love 
in modern terms. People are talking about Romulus at the beginning is talking about land and freedom. Like, right. dude, chill out. Like, yeah. it's 800. You're not talking, you know, like giving a big sermon on land and freedom to Julia or whatever. Yeah, you like, don't even know what the hell that means. <laughs> I got to say, one of the funniest anachronisms I've ever seen in a movie is definitely in Sebastian when Maximus is like telling stories and he has that Cecil B. DeMille reference uh, did you guys catch that oh yeah I mean, well there's a there's a d- <laughs> there's a dual reference in the bathhouse when all the boys are chilling and shaving themselves right. and uh yeah maximus is like critiquing the circus and he goes on this whole like nostalgia trip you mm-hmm. know where he's like oh a hundred years ago we had great games and now look at it you know just totally going off <laughs> yeah. yeah he's like yeah, there was one old mangy lion, and it fell asleep, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah, I love his line, because he says, it's just, oh, the chariot races of the famous Cecile Mille, <laughs> director of the Silva Sacra. <laughs> Dude, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's amazing, because there's also a Fellini reference, right. too. He references DeMille and Fellini. When is the, the ba- Fellini reference? It's also one. in the bathhouse, but, like, the subtitle had it, like, P-H-I-L-L-I-N-I, Fellini. Oh, that's awesome. But He's basically describing Satyricon. Yes, yeah, he mentioned Satyricon. Yeah, in the bathhouse. So there's a connection where Jarman is knowingly calling back to those who preceded him, DeMille Mm -hmm. and uh, Fellini. But also, like, I think a, a more poignant link, too, is like... Flaming Creatures, Jack Smith, yeah. which I think Fellini stole from, and Fellini stole from Kenneth Anger, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, you know? like So Jarman's also being like, well, gay cinema was kind of doing, like, orgies, like, real cool orgy shit, you know? I mean, I was uh, also thinking alongside of... Alongside it. I yeah. was also thinking of Pasolini a lot, oh, oh, you know? Yeah, like, of I was thinking of, of his, like, Edipo Ray, like, while I was watching mm-hmm. this a lot, for sure. Yeah. I believe he was his favorite filmmaker Pasolini I think Jarman's favorite filmmaker was Pasolini I mean I'm like almost positive I mean that makes so much sense (laughs) and that that definitely makes sense when you really put this one under a microscope especially the book I cracked open about Jarman it's called Angelic Conversations and the opening thesis is like Pasolini and Derek Jarman were basically the same person. And then it Two goes sides on of the to same like, coin. Yeah, yeah, it goes on to like their similarities and then their diverging points, but uh, a core reference, I think, for sure. And I think you see a lot of Pasolini, certainly in Sebastian, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And again, like the way Pasolini specifically handled his, like, you know, classical adaptations and and also populated them with plenty of anachronistic elements right too. and those are like yeah those are like pre you know civilization set sort of like uh texts too mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Yeah. calling back to the days of romulus there's just something about that that tickles me so much to make like an anachronistic movie joke like in latin i was just like marveling at how well they all spoke latin I mean, I guess that, like, helps if you have, like, a British education, you know? The, those guys, like, who were probably in, like, theater school, if a lot of those actors, like, were, like, classically trained British actors, you have to think, like, oh, yeah, and they probably went to Oxford, and they had to, like, <laughs> learn to speak yeah. Latin fluently. The British <laughs> boarding school, yeah. yeah. Easier thing to pull off then than, than now, I'm sure. Yeah, well, especially when you, again, just speaking more broadly about, you know, Rome and Rome like films, films about ancient Rome. Like my dad's always like, he loves making the crack too. That's it's always been like, 
you know, why is it when Hollywood or Great Britain, all these places, they, they did movies about ancient Rome, the choice was always British accents, right? If it's yeah. a Hollywood film, they had British accents. Certainly, if it's a British film, they've got British accents. And my dad would always go, why aren't they trying at least Italian accents? That even makes more sense, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. But, but at least in this case, right, that they chose to go with Latin. <laughs> Again, when you compare it to Duel of the Titans, and we'd had this discussion, like, are you watching it in Italian or are you watching it in English? And I chose to watch it in English because I was like, well, you know, I want to hear like Steve Reeves and Gordon Scott do their thing, right? Which makes it even that much crazier because they're not attempting British accents. They are the most American sounding dudes in that film. You shouldn't have done that, Remus. I know what should be done and what shouldn't be done. You keep out of this, Romulus. There is only one leader here, me. That's a decision you made on your own. Our mother's dying wish was that we live in agreement and together build the city. The gods have chosen me and by the gods I'll convince you! If you're trying to provoke me, you won't succeed. I'd never fight my brother. Right, but but yeah, it's it's such a weird like language aspect of all these various depictions of Rome throughout the years. And, and I do really appreciate that because there's very, very, very few films about Rome that have ever incorporated like actual Latin in the characters right. in the way that they speak. There was, I discovered, as I was sort of like looking into this film, there was in 2019 an Italian film called The First King I that saw. came out that was <laughs> a depiction of the, the Romulus and Remus story. And they chose in that too do it in like ancient Latin. And apparently they had to like get linguistics professors involved to even try to get older, older Latin than you certainly heard in uh, Sebastian. That was basically like, from what I read, Jarman's point was like literally the same as your dad's. He's like, the problem with all these goddamn movies is that these people are speaking in English. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't want my audience to feel that when they watch this movie. That's preposterous. He wanted it to feel like a foreign film to an English audience, yeah, you right. know? And it's like, you nailed it. Yeah. You know, like it's so effective in just evoking this other world. Truly. It made me feel as though I was watching a film from a country I've never seen before. <laughs> right. Because of how unique it, it is to just hear Latin being spoken. I, I did the same thing as you, Andy. I, I wanted to see if like there were other films in Latin. And I, <laughs> I think it was on Letterboxd where you go to details. And I click Latin and I saw that movie you referenced. And then I also saw that they have it listed. It's clearly a mistake that one of the like Bratz dolls movies is uh, <laughs> in Latin. I think it's like pretty funny. Oh my yeah. god! Maybe they have a, a scene in Latin. You never know. Um, that's like that's a Gen Z question. Uh, or a Latin dub version. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When Kyle watched like thirty seconds of Sebastian, but it was the part when Severus was berating everyone for not wanting to do the the warrior drills anymore, and he's going pugnate, pugnate, and Kyle goes, "You fight." You know, hey. so, uh, immediately she was she was back in eighth grade Latin class. It's funny. I'm like suddenly thinking now that Sebastian is sort of the the bridge between passing strangers and the passion of the Christ. You take some of oh, the yeah. formal elements and obsessions of both of those films and put them together. 
because it's also got like the dead language. Yeah, I, 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 I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was thinking that while I was watching the film, I couldn't help but like go, well, this is the, this is the passion of Sebastian. Oh yeah, yeah, and it, it's a very similar kind of approach uh, to the story in that, yes. Saint Sebastian is, of course, this this like Christian symbol and and certainly a a, a big Catholic symbol at, at that. But this is a, a an almost like secular attempt at exploring sure. this uh, beatification, this 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 moment of of you know becoming a saint. And 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 again, like we talked about, Corbucci sort of brushing aside certain mythological aspects. Jarman is doing that here to be like, I want to focus on like the physicality of what he went through. And again, to whatever kind of credit we wanted to give Mel Gibson, right? Until the final scene, the final like epilogue moment where, you know, Christ comes back out to the, you know, <laughs> dirt, 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 you know, when he comes back from, from the dead, like Mel Gibson was like, I wanted to focus on, yeah, the, the physical torment right. of, of what, what Christ went through. So yeah, this is, yeah, maybe, maybe Mel was watching. Could you imagine Mel Gibson sitting down and watching St. Sebastian? What do you think? Do you think he'd be in this Sebastian? Maybe. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, honestly, passing strangers has more plot than the passion of the Christ and Sebastian probably put together, even though it has also like 30 minutes of fucking in it. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. Well, you know, one thing that I was just reminded of speaking of torture, uh, there's some great torture in, in oh, Duel yeah. of the Titans oh, hell as, yeah. as well, I gotta say. Uh, when uh is it Reeves that's being spun around? Yeah, oh Romulus. my god. Yeah, the wheel. Whoa, dude. <laughs> Whoa. You have got to be like a sturdy beefcake to be able to like endure that on a like a film set. That was out of control. That was a real spin man. <laughs> it's dude, he is for the audience who don't know what we're talking about here. Uh, at a certain point, Romulus is imprisoned, and he's being tortured by this this guy, Amulius, this sort of like evil king like figure. And they have him up on this big like X, right? And he's strapped onto it. You can imagine a man like you know spread eagle on this thing, and he is just fully spinning around, fully revolving. And this is not just like a, a, a quick snippet. This is a shot that goes on. Yeah. In depth. There is duration to the shot. And Steve Reeves is just up there spinning around <laughs> while also being like flogged on his like big chiseled abs. And that shot goes on for like 30, 40 seconds where yeah. he's just fully spinning and being whipped. Hello, Ladro di Montoni, vuoi parlare? I... I can't even imagine counting how many times he fully <laughs> spun around oh, in that shot alone. I have such regret shot. now for not doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the more startling images I've honestly seen in a while. <laughs> and it's everything. It's kind of like the way it's framed, too. It's it's sort of like in the background almost of the shot, but yeah, it's... It is awesome. And this is before they're going to, like, feed him to the arena. So he's just, like, murdered in front of everyone. <laughs> they have to spin him around a bunch. Yeah, and it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like he gets off of it and he's just, like, fine, you know? When it cuts to his, like, you know, his, like, medium shot, he is not phased at all. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. does not look phased <laughs> in the slightest. I mean, that's... 
That's like I said, you know, that's that's full beefcake for you. Yeah, right there. full beefcake and just like a different era in terms of like, you know, things were looser. Things were looser. I just think about that horse race, too, which it's like, God damn, wouldn't that just be the coolest thing? To watch. Oh, things on a loop, dude. I love how that was shot, where it was clearly like they only had X amount of land, but you just punch in and then you just extend the horse race yeah. like yeah. Oh, oh, a, yeah. another minute or two on this just returning to the same stretches. Yeah, it's it's like a hundred yard dash, but <laughs> but it looks like they're running for like three miles. But dude, even then, like that shit's awesome. I mean, get give it up to Corbucci because there were so many uh filmmakers making these like very, very shitty films and like I've seen the the Hercules movies with Steve Reeves, Hercules and Hercules Unchained. Any fans of the podcast who were like MST3K kids are are probably familiar with Steve Reeves. I think he made a few appearances throughout the years on on Mystery Science Theater. But Corbucci, I mean, like, man, that horse scene, and yes, a lot of ingenuity there in sort of reusing shots, but some of those were incredible. The the one angle where he's sort of the camera's pointing directly through all of these various like bales of hay that are on fire while the horses are are leaping over them. It's so cool. Like the smoke <laughs> and the like the heat waves that you can see affecting like the 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 camera itself, like are are just amazing and bring so much intensity to what is like, yes, a a, a very kind of probably like threadbare production on a certain level. I mean, this, this has like great at times, like really great looking like uh, production design and production values. But again, it's like, this is all just stuff like laying around on the back lots yeah. of, of these, these Italian like studios. It's mainly really impressive when it does go wide. Cause they clearly had so many extras for it. Like that actually gives it an impressive sense of scale. But when it's, when we get close-ups and we see all the stuff that they have, that's when everything looks like incredibly inexpensive and sort of just cobbled together. I love, there's also during that horse race, some insane, I don't, I wonder how they rigged it up with those horses with, with the camera cart. Cause there are some crazy close-ups of those horses who look like they are extremely uncomfortable <laughs> with, with how they're dashing forward, just like open mouthed and bug eyed, like right into a camera. <laughs> oh yeah. This, I mean, you want to talk Ooh. about, you want to talk about Cecil B. DeMille. There is a lot of like, there Dude, are the traps at the end. I was cringing. Oh dude. yeah. yeah. There, there's a lot of horses that are taking very, very bad, like falls throughout this movie and stunt people as well. But like, I certainly was like feeling for all the, the horses. Yeah. In this, I liked it know? much better when it was like the fat guy who plunges into the water and drops his bag when they're, when they're like on their <laughs> pilgrimage, you know, and he's just like, yeah. God damn. Gets back up. <laughs> he just he just like leaves it all too, like <laughs> yeah. his shit. You know, he's just like, well, screw that. Like, right. We got to keep moving, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but that whole arena, the whole arena sequence is is wild because you also get that that bear fight, which goes from again a a shot of a very real bear to a shot of a man in a bear suit, like very quickly uh, as Steve Reeves like overpowers it and strangles it to death. Um, yeah, that whole sequence was just absolutely crazy. I could not have done it alone. The gods willed it. Do not deny the Mamulius. I think, too, one funny sort of divergence, of course, is the 
approach to music in both films, the approach to oh, the yeah. score. And I, I quite liked the Duel of the Titans score, and it is a total just cliche, sort of Hollywood-style, like, rousing kind of adventure score, but I, I really liked it. And then I was so happy to see Brian Eno in the opening credits of the Derek Jarman yeah. film. And I was like, oh, shit, we are so in for it and the score is great and it is yeah mostly just like minimal synthesizers and it is like the whole rest of the film just like so evocative yeah it's out of this world there's that really extended sequence when i can't remember which guys it is i think it's justin and someone else they're they're frolicking in the pools and they're splishing and splashing and it's in slow motion and there's all these extended close-ups of their hairy legs that are glistening in the in the sunlight, all the water reflected off of it. And it, it that Brian Eno score, it felt as though it felt as though like the notes he was playing and the sounds he's he's creating were like in response to that bo- those bodies being like run through a player piano or something like as if I don't know like it's like impossible to describe but it just felt as though like the music was so keyed in directly into what we were seeing on screen their bodies it was it was transcendent I was like completely transported during that sequence <laughs> into that pool with them it was just like otherworldly they're both really <laughs> Uh, they're both really good landscape films as well. I guess that's really no surprise with what we've already talked about in terms of Titans being this kind of Western. And we get a lot of fantastic vistas. We get the two, three, nine frame filled to the brim with sunsets and mountains and, oh, and yeah. valleys. And of course, Jarman is known for, for his uh, painterly eye and, and his work with landscapes. I mean... Again, I'm not even going to bother describing it, but he is consistently setting them against the rocks, the land, you know, again, this sort of harsh landscape that they're in. Yeah, there's this shot I was like so floored by where it felt as though there were four or five frames within frames and they're only revealed like as characters start entering into it. There's like that really long shot when Sebastian is is dancing and there's like rocks of that tower that like create an arch around him and then there's a subsequent doorway beyond that and through that doorway there's the sky and the water and then when a character starts walking up he's like back he's he's essentially carved out of the frame from the water which is like a very different shade of blue compared to the sky that the depth of that shot like blew my mind it was just an unbelievable thing to look at and he does it again later when they're tying sebastian up to the pole before they're gonna shoot him uh and like severus is like frame left just like pouting sebastian is frame right being tied up and then all of a sudden in like the insane deep distance the rest of the guys start to just like manifest over the the horizon yeah. you know i mean it is like yeah next it's as if level. they like like raise up out of like the the craggly stony ground itself yeah and Whoa. then you have got yeah. corbucci who's splitting up the frame with some really radical split diopter scope oh, yeah. imagery especially when they're doing it at night it's it's such an effective use of it because you can't see the blur line just the having 
men's heads, beefcake, like perfectly rectangular heads in the corner of the frame. And then like all the stuff in the distance still being in focus. Really, really striking. The the scene where they're... The two tribes, well, the, the the one tribe splits apart when, you know, in the story, uh, you know, Romulus is, and the people, Romulus and Remus, like they, they've, they've sort of collected all of these, these refugees after this kind of like cleansing fire of revolution they bring to the, the tyrannical uh, Amulius's like kingdom and the, the, the Sabine people and that sort of thing. They're they're then off. They're going to find their 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 city. They're going to found this prophetic place that their mother tells them about as as she dies. Uh, there's tension between the group because Remus is going full like megalomania. You know, he wants to be the king. He wants to be the leader. And uh, Marsh alluded to this earlier, but the the people decide. Well, let's settle this. Let's settle this like like men, I guess. Let's count birds. <laughs> they, uh, they they have them each like go off. You go off on your side. I'll go off on mine, and and we'll count birds. And whoever counts more birds is favored by the gods. The gods favor Romulus, but Remus immediately rejects the the uh, the result. He doesn't like it. So the only solution they can kind of come up with to avoid. Uh, murdering each other and Remus is ready to just be like let's just fight it out right now Romulus loves his brother and doesn't want to so the tribe they decide like we'll, we'll split apart you know and whoever finds it first they'll be they'll be the king when they are then like leaving on this mountain to go on their separate paths it's like at magic hour why are you crying everything that's happened is my fault if you'd never met me you'd now be marching side by side with your brother I've separated you, and now I'm afraid, Romulus. I'm afraid for you. It isn't your fault. We were born the same day, under the same sign, but with different destinies. I never wanted to be the leader. We could make our decisions together, but Remus knows only one law, force. I beg you, Romulus, let me leave. I've got to stop my father. No, Julia. It's too late. Your future's mine. You're mine. I don't know what's at the end of the journey, but we'll welcome it. Yes, we'll welcome it. Together. And you get again in that, like, kind of shot you're describing, this, like, very deep background shot of of the people kind of like trekking down this mountain as the sun is either rising or setting mm -hmm. and Steve Reeves in the immediate foreground and the sky is like purple, like this almost like indigo shade. It's it's really, really like a, a stunning little shot. That, that surprised me because I'll be honest, I was expecting this to be like a lot a lot more like lackluster yeah. than yeah. it actually was. And, and again, that speaks to like the craft that Corbucci would bring as he gained more notoriety and bigger budgets, certainly as the like spaghetti Westerns would, would take off in the mid sixties. Because again, like this was evoking to me, like less like what he would do in Django and more what he would do with the great silence in the way that he would capture like the, the snowy, like mountainous landscape of, of that film and like solitary figures, like surrounded by all that, that vast kind of emptiness, some, some really, really amazing stuff. For what it's worth though, I, I did 
like I liked the movie. I still like kind of wished I saw the you know hour and a half cut. It was like ultimately kind of boring. Not that that's like the movie's fault really, but I was never tired of looking at it. That is like absolutely true. There is a wonderful part where they have like a sorcerer moment. You know, there's like a narrow bridge. Uh, sequence that oh, I found yeah. to be uh, quite thrilling, you know. But yeah, I mean, it suffers, Ryan, from, you know, what most of these films from this era suffer from, you know, kind of like overplotting and like overextending themselves because while it's a historical epic, so it's got to be like an hour and 40 minutes, right. you know, uh, just that it just, it's just all a little extra, you know, and like, yeah, these films all suffer from this, this like white elephant uh, sort of approach to history. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I do have a question though about that scene at the bridge and just correct me if I like misunderstood how that drawbridge worked because that sequence, they all cross it. They're being chased. So they get everybody across and then one guy has, they have to like cut the bridge to like make it so that no one else can cross and that they'll be secure over the, you know, the ravine or whatever. But so like the one guy, he crosses the bridge and sacrifices himself by like, using the the sword and like cutting the bridge loose and then he dies why didn't he just cut it from the other side what did i miss like what? well he was also uh the soldiers were there so he took down a few soldiers like uh, they were they were there and i feel like he was already dying too had didn't he get shot oh did he okay i mean he might have yeah he might have gotten hit by, by <laughs> like an, an arrow, arrow yeah but, but yeah again it's just this sort of like hey here's a here's a guy who's going to sacrifice himself right. for the cause i yes. just figured you know if it's if it's a matter of like cutting a drawbridge it's like well you could cut him from both sides <laughs> That's true. They could have cut. They could have been like, "Dude, get over here. We're about to cut it." Yeah, Yeah. you know. But yeah, I mean, it also like again budgetary, right? They didn't like drop the whole bridge. They only kind of like dropped a small section of the bridge, which they could easily probably reset. Right. And I think even Remus says like, "This won't stop them very long." It's like, yeah, you didn't really do a a great job of dropping the bridge, you know? Yeah. And ultimately what this film is about to me is like, yeah, as you pointed out, Andy, it's like Remus, you know, he's just, it's just this kind of like ego driven bro, you know, he wants the glory of, of starting Rome, but he doesn't really want to do the work. But what's interesting is that Romulus just like wants to get laid. Oh, yeah. But then, of course, like in the Roman mind and probably also in Corbucci's mind, that's why he's the perfect man to lead us because he doesn't want anything to do with this. He just wants to have sex with the blonde woman. Yes. You know, like. Oh, yeah. I mean, he even says, you know, Romulus says, well, look. When my brother was young, he dreamed of commanding men, and I just sort of like dreamed of women. Or I think I think uh, Remus says that Remus says it like I dreamed of commanding men, and my brother my brother Romulus dreamed of waking up next to women or something like that. Yeah, which, who do you want to lead us? You uh, know, Romulus, the Chad I mean, or the Virgin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, absolutely. And yeah, I think again that's like. Because Corbucci had a hand in writing this, and I, and again, I think that like his his sort of cynicism of all this, it, it's like it, it manifests in Romulus, who is not this kind of like noble hero throughout, but just sort of a, a big himbo, this kind of like bumbling, yes, big strong guy, but like Romulus is 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 king by virtue of sort of like 
accident, coincidence, and happenstance more than anything. But the people, too, right? It's like, at a certain point, the people want, like, they're like, this guy rocks. Yeah. Like, he's hot, he's buff, he seems to know what he's doing. Like, he's chill. So I think that's a part of it, too. Like, the people sort of thrust him into the, into the role at very, the end of the day. Very much know? so. Very much so. But yeah, speaking of thrusting, I guess then ultimately what Sebastian is about too, like if you were to take all of those sequences and kind of like lay it all out and think like, what really is this film? To me, it's it's about all these like small moments of poetry in the day to day and just like being together and hanging out. That's what I love so much about it, whether that's just men playing dice at night or looking at ancient pornography in the middle of the night um and getting all riled up or even just like sitting by the water and comparing the songs that they're hearing in a seashell next to each other just so many little details throughout all the time we spend with everybody it's like there's just like a little nugget of poetry like in each individual scene sure and also again like jarman as a a a queer filmmaker and, and an openly queer filmmaker in especially like in the uk when there there weren't very many of those I mean, right we we see his his critique of society as well because yeah if you if you really boil this whole thing down and sum it up it's like who is sebastian he's just a guy who's happy to be like left alone and and treat everyone around him with with dignity and mm. respect, respect regardless of who they are and what happens. Like this society essentially like lynches him, you yeah. know, for, for nothing other than, than who he is and, and who he wants to be, which again, as Marsh pointed out, isn't even necessarily like this sort of like lo the, the lusty gay man or something like that. I mean, he's, He's betrothed to God and taken by God alone, but this is an an allegory for Jarman to to explore that. You know, I mean, Jarman is is of course like referencing all of the the various uh, I would think as well like English men and women whose lives were ruined by antiquated laws which which made homosexuality literally illegal yeah. until i think 1967 yeah it was something it was, like that it was late yeah. 60s when it when it first became like loose but actually i think the law remained on the sure. books even like longer than that it just it, it they, they stopped enforcing that law but but yeah i mean he's definitely showing us right what has happened to to so many people uh who've who've, who've come before Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's all about his his outsider status. And I'm and I'm really struck. And again, you know, it's like maybe this is why I one of the reasons I loved it so much is like, as you put it, Andy, it is this kind of like secular sort of approach to this saint. And and I think that's sort of like Jarman's goal is like merging with Sebastian, merging like spirituality and queerness. And then it's like the Romans are like, we have to kill this guy. Like yeah. it's too weird. It's too weird. You know, it's too not normal. We got to get rid of this because again, I'm so struck by how his relationship to God, which we see in the form of him basically like communing with nature. It's not explicitly Christian 
in any way, shape or form, right? It's like this queer love for God and this love of nature and this very like, you know, open interpretation of everything. It's not recognizably Christian in, in any way. Yeah, the he's way not we... a missionary. He's not going around <laughs> trying to convert all the rest of the guys to to, to Christianity. Like, Although there are actively. willing converts. Well, sure. <laughs> like, there Justin, are people who are like, you know? man, this guy's cool. I kind of like what he's on. He basically know? picks up a follower, you know, just by being like chill. Yeah. And all of a sudden, Justin is identifying as a Christian when Sebastian isn't even doing that. You know, literally. That is yeah. one of the most interesting qualities is that he is so chill and is just being himself. And their reaction to that is to call him an unrepentant Christian, you know, as if it's like something inflammatory, his mere yeah. existence. Like like he's a fanatic or something exactly. like that. Yeah. 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 And he's, well, again, yeah, he's I, the opposite. I, I guess that links both of the films, you know, in, in the same way that you've said, you know, it's like, who would you rather follow? Like the, the Chad, the Chad Romulus or the Virgin Remus. It's like, again, for guys in that camp, who would you rather follow? Like the 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 chad sebastian or like the 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 virgin severus you know this <laughs> absolutely like this man who is just like frothing at the mouth he's so repressed you know he cannot just simply like like bust a nut and just like relax he's got to like yeah like he's got to be all weird about he's it he's got to be weird he's about gotta it he's got to be weird man. about like, it and i love that they call him out like just to hear it said in Latin, like "oh, sounds like Severus is really beating the meat," and that was like in <laughs> reference to him like whipping Sebastian in a pigsty. But just the fact to hear like that's clearly the joke they were making, and to hear yeah. that vulgar expression in Latin is like one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a movie. I have one sort of last thought about Duel of the Titans that that I want to bring up. And I was thinking, you know, it's pretty weird to have a film about the founding of Rome that has two American stars and almost feels like a like a psyop of some kind, you know? Like, what is the meaning of this, you sure. know? I mean, I guess that was the, I mean, again, it's the Italian way for the idea of getting any kind of like international money out of these films. Yeah. Uh yeah, I mean, but you're right. I mean, it is. It's not very Roman of them to. No, no, but but almost in a way they would get their like revenge by making all these like westerns it's that true. are like ninety five percent Italians and Europeans. So, you know. yeah, revenge incoming. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, both of these movies to me are also just about hypocrisy. And, and I think in their ultimate oh, yeah. view of like, again, authority and power, states, all those kinds of things, you know, these, these, these movies both show us like the, the, the violent hypocrisy that, that governs so many people's lives. I mean, certainly in the character of Severus and certainly in the character of, of Remus. And I don't want to put it necessarily all on Remus because, again, Corbucci is a guy that's always looking at like systems, systems of power. But, but yeah, to me, these are, these are both films dealing with... With that of, of people who 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 don't necessarily practice what they preach or maybe practice what they preach all too uh, all too hard I guess you know <laughs> well here's to the greatest city ever the eternal city 
Yeah, I mean, Rome. when we, when you when you pitched Rome, did you think that you'd be watching a film with like a bunch of morning wood jokes in it? I hoped so. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I think that's the thing. It's like it, it's ripe for for invention and for reinterpretation and for remythologizing. I mean, it's a it's a great canvas, you know. Yeah, and it has you know it has that reputation of just like being horny and full of orgies too. I mean, Andy and I were talking yeah. about like God Caligula, like do we even dare? <laughs> oh man, I I was I, heard. I was this close, but I was like. I was like, Marsh has to have seen Caligula, and I don't know if I want to subject him. You've seen it, I right? have, a yeah. long, long time ago. Yeah, but. I assumed you didn't have it on your letterbox, mm. but I was like, Marsh has to have seen no, this. No, in, in the naughty video store days. Oh, you yeah. Know, we, That's we what I said to Ryan, because Ryan's like, oh, I haven't seen it. I'm like, I can't believe you, the sicko that you are, that this wasn't one that you were like, I got to check the Caligula box off. I mean, this is a notorious I know notorious I probably of, always was just like well all the parts without the filth are probably just a boring Roman movie <laughs> I mean not I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily so oh I, I mean I, I, I wouldn't I think necessarily that, say so yeah I, that's what I thought then is what I'm saying that that was probably why I never ended up like getting it on you know right in front of my face uh <laughs> but it's true yeah. it, i mean like i had phases where i was just like give me the gnarliest shit give me the classic i feel again like i said to you i feel as though i've seen it you know i feel like i've sure. seen clips and images read about it um well yeah marsh i guess um you know you referenced some of the roman films that you were watching but are there any others that for someone who's a little like nervous about watching them because i'm always afraid i'm gonna be a little little bored listen to all those british accents what would you recommend uh, well, besides Barabbas, yeah. uh, which we've covered extensively and referenced extensively, <laughs> uh, I mean, Jarman called it out. I think my favorite Rome movie is Fellini's Satyricon. It's a really? film that I watched in undergrad, and, and I loved it. I was, like, obsessed with it for some reason. No, because it's great. And we used to, in college, we used to, like, on YouTube, pull up the like the labyrinth scene all the time and just like laugh and cackle at it because it's like really funny. It's got the crazy like crowd sound effects where it's like, it's insane. Like, I mean, it's just a fun movie, you know, uh, the days of Nero, right? Through the eyes of Fellini. It's just a big fucking mess and a visual splendor uh, at that. Otherwise, you know, I, this is probably an annoying answer, but uh, Deadwood, you know, because uh, <laughs> Deadwood started as a David Milch project about Rome, right? He wanted to use Rome to examine how a society was formed and how a civilization was formed. And uh, they said, uh, uh, sorry, uh, John Milius is already making already making this, <laughs> yeah. and then he wrote Deadwood to examine the same exact idea that he was going to examine in his Rome series. So, if it wasn't for Rome, ancient Rome, we wouldn't have Deadwood, and where would we be? Nowhere at all. Mm -hmm. To say nothing of. Rome the series because that's actually also very good yeah. and I highly recommend that it's it's great Hell you know yeah. so yeah thank you guys so much I had a blast you know we had the 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 conventional sword and sword and sandal epic and I and I really enjoyed it and we had uh, a taste of uh, the the Roman art house you know and 
beautiful film. I think. And we got to see lots of very, very handsome, muscular men. So. Very this, handsome. Yeah, maybe... Yeah, maybe our our most like muscle bound slash homoerotic week on accident, or was yeah. it? Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <Just> so <laughs> handsome. Uh, next week it is Andy's topic. What do you have for us this time? Um. Well. You know, it's it's uh, it's roughly that time of the year here in Chicago. Uh, the night that we're recording this, uh, the needle dropped well below twenty degrees Fahrenheit. It is very cold here in Chicago, and it got me thinking how you know in the in the winter, uh, certainly in in our city, but I think in any city that that uh, experiences uh, brutally cold winters, I end up spending a lot of time, you know, indoors. I spend a lot of time just sort of hunkering down in my house and feeling as though the the elements themselves have me uh, barricaded in. So I started thinking about a, a certain type of, of cinema, the siege film. So next week, I want to see movies about characters trapped under siege, barricaded in somewhere, trying to hold out against all odds against them. So we're, we're going to get locked down. We're under siege next week. Let me out of here. <laughs> As always, you can follow us online. Listen to us at uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud. And you can always send us your emails, your thoughts, your questions, your requests to gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. It was not you who decided our destiny. We cannot go against our fate. Oh, no one should challenge your power now. And the city which you shall build be as great as the one I dreamed of. Ah, oh, Remus. <laughs>